0: Dear Father, teach us tonight as only you can. We know you presented this word to us, Father, so that we would have a knowledge that is important for us and would glorify you. You're not a God of confusion. You tell us, you you give these things to us so that we may know the mind of God. And we know, Father, that though men have come to this book for centuries and come away sometimes with different understandings, sometimes wrong understandings, and perhaps we've done that too at times. We know that's not because you are incapable of teaching or unwilling to reveal yourself for you wrote it for that purpose. We know it's either a lack of scholarship or time or effort or attention or preparation. It's something, Father, that we can address and something you would call us to do so. And I pray, Lord, today is a day in which we would do some of that preparation work and we'd listen closely and we'd set aside preconceived notions or we would be open to what you're teaching None of us walked in here, Father, with all the answers. None of us will walk out with all of them, either. But, Father, we also know that we cannot be taught if we think we know it all. Uh, We cannot be open to the truth if we're convinced we already have it. So I pray, Father, that whatever we may have today in our hearts concerning the matters you've written to, to us in this letter, that we would set those things aside just briefly, long enough to hear you afresh today in your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first nights in any study are always a bit of a chore. You know, you have to get used to what's coming and hear the preliminaries and so on. We've done that. We put the introduction behind us last week. So let's dive headlong into the theology of Paul's most important letter. In the introduction last week, you saw him attempting to build that bridge with his audience because they had some sense that he had been neglecting them. He moved from that into what I call block two, the thesis, and where he says the message of the gospel is, or you could say possesses, the power of God to save those who believe it. The message of the gospel possesses the power of God to save those who believe it. There is only one message that saves, and it is sufficient to save all, Paul says, both Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. And in it, we see revealed the righteousness of God through our faith. That's where he started. There is a ton of theology just in that Opening statement, and there's a lot of questions that come out of it. Paul's going to address all of that as we go through the letter. But let's summarize it in simple terms. This is a letter about how anyone can become good enough to enter heaven. That's a very accurate way to describe the contents of this letter. How do you become good enough, or as Paul would say, how do we become righteous? This is a letter about that problem. So now, having set up the thesis, all that remains for Paul to do is to elaborate on how we obtain the righteousness that's required for heaven. And elaborating on it is no small task. In fact, it's going to require 15 chapters for Paul to do that. Before Paul even gets started in that discourse, he's going to deal with some counter-arguments about false ways in which men think they can become righteous before God. He's going to refute four major categories of religious lies. All human religion fits somewhere in one of these four categories. So you and I can pick any world religion you've ever heard of, past or present, and I can assign it to one of these categories by what it believes. Paul is going to address these lies first, before he goes into the one true way that we can become righteous, because it makes sense, right? You, you want to dispel the false thinking before you can replace it with the right thinking. You have to show the problems in their thinking before they're receptive, usually, to another way of thought. So he has to dispel these four major religious lies. Block three begins in verse 18. What Paul does in verse 18 is he opens up with a statement that concerns all false religion. You could even think of this as a mini thesis of its own just for this block. Paul says the wrath of God, we read this verse last week, he said the wrath of God is to be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Here's what he's saying. He's saying there is an unseen God and he is prepared to hold accountable humanity for their sin and he will hold us accountable Because his existence is undeniable. Paul says the knowledge of God is self-evident to the world. And how is it self-evident? Because it's witnessed by our own conscience, Paul says. He says the knowledge of God is present in every human being. The knowledge is not specific, it's general. Everyone has an instinctive understanding that a creator God exists, but that instinct is insufficient to explain God to ourselves completely. Solomon said it this way in Ecclesiastes from last week. He said... God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So God has given us an instinctive knowledge of himself, put it in our heart, as Solomon wrote, and yet that knowledge is not sufficient that we could know all that God is doing or all that he is. It just leaves us with an appreciation that there is a God. But, Paul says, despite the fact that we begin with that conscious awareness, that instinctive knowledge of God mankind is so desperately evil that we will suppress this truth in ourselves by substituting lies and we call these lies religion so religion in the broadest sense of the term are the lies we tell ourselves concerning god though we think there are a wide variety of such lies scripture teaches here in romans that there are only four types of religious lies And within each of these types, you will find countless variations. But those variations are largely meaningless. You're just playing with the details within that larger concept. So what Paul's going to do is deal with each of the four, and I assure you, anything you want to name, religious thinking you want to name, will fit in one of these four, and the argument will apply. Where we begin with this is the first of these lies, and it's not just first for arbitrary reasons, it is literally the first world religion. Paganism. The lie of paganism asserts that some part of creation is God. Pagans worship things they see instead of the invisible God who made it all. And at this stage, you hear this idea of paganism and you think you immediately know what I'm talking about. You imagine people in bearskins dancing around fire, praying to some wooden totem pole idol or something. And that's certainly a pagan worship practice, but it's much broader than that and much more prevalent in our society today than you may realize pagans are people who worship the sun or the moon or the stars in other words astrology is paganism pagans are people who worship nature in various forms so mother nature science when it becomes someone's religion that's paganism they worship animals or people so reincarnation cults who worship their leaders that's paganism they worship angels or aliens or demons or the devil himself devil worship is paganism So you can also fit religions into this culture like Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, Unitarianism, Scientology, Zoroastrianism, Earth religion, Humanism, Darwinism. They're all worshiping something as if it's its own source, as if there is nothing higher than it. The common denominator among all of these paganistic systems is the worship of something created, something they can name, point to, see, touch examine and they have suppressed the truth that these things actually have no power to create anything therefore the pagan conveniently overlooks the question of where did everything come from they have worshipped something that had to have a beginning and yet they have no explanation for the beginning of anything (laughs) even science and their attempts to explain things absent god have arrived at the big bang theory but they still can't explain where the things for the big bang came from no matter how far back you go, even if they say, well, we all came from aliens who deposited us here. Where did the aliens come from? You keep going back and you keep finding nothing to answer the fundamental question of where did everything begin? Paganism's chief flaw. They only look within the creation for their solution. And as a result, they become foolish scripture says paul explains the pagan fallacy in verses 20 through 23 which is a long introduction to get you the text but here it goes verse 20 for since the creation of the world his meaning god's invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse for even though they knew god they did not honor him as god or give thanks But became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image, in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator." who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul's doing more here than meets the eye. Uh, He's walking you through a history of paganism here. But more than that, he's explaining what the effect on humanity was that we pursued paganism. And there's something very important historically here that's often overlooked. Paganism was the first religion. It owns the dubious distinction of being the very first false religion that anyone ever invented. It traces its origins to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 where you have Nimrod leading mankind for the first time into the worship of the creation. The people declare back in chapter 11 of Genesis that they've come together in a city to construct a tower, that the top of which would be in the heavens. People in that day believed themselves powerful enough to define a new heaven for themselves. And they say, at one point in chapter 11 of Genesis, they declare this. They say, let us make a name for ourselves. If you remember the account, you might remember that reference. Let us make a name for ourselves. The Hebrew word for name is Shem. Who was the patriarch of that time? Shem. In other words, there was one line of humanity descending from Adam that God promised he would work through to bring a seed, to bring the Messiah. Effectively, that means there was only one believing family on the earth all the way through the times of Noah and afterward until you reach Abraham. Only after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did God begin to extend faith to families and then to a nation. So at any given point in history, up until Abraham, you could find one and only one family that had faith. That's why only eight people got on an ark. And therefore... When God was at work in the world in this day, he was at work in the world through Shem. He was the patriarch. He was the Melchizedek of his day. They knew that. And they instead decide they're going to make their own Shem, their own name. That is, they're going to establish another way to God, an alternative representation of God in their day. And so paganism was born. But also, remember, chapter 11 of Genesis takes place after the flood almost 2,000 years after Adam's fall. So mankind did not embrace worship of creation right away. For 2,000 plus years, they did not embrace anything. It took a while, and Paul explains why it took so long. He says, in the beginning, the reality of God was evident to everyone. He says, though they knew God, verse 21, who's he speaking about? If you've ever heard someone teaching out of this chapter and saying, See, all mankind knows God, but they have gone away from him. That's nonsense. That's not what he's saying. He's saying early man. He's teaching the history of how we got to where we are. In the beginning of mankind, Adam knew God. Abel knew God. Cain knew God. Many knew God through those early generations of mankind. They beheld the glory of the creation. They understood that an all-powerful God made it. They knew who God was to some extent. But there was a period of spiritual deterioration over those early years of mankind. The catalyst for that deterioration, of course, was sin and the curse that God put on the earth as a result of sin. The fallen state of man didn't just put our soul in mortal jeopardy, it also put a cancer of sorts in our heart, one that robbed us of the ability to truly know and follow God. And Paul says, in the beginning, though men knew God, men like Cain, for example, Cain was an unbeliever, the scripture testifies to in Hebrews. It's interesting, he knew of God, but he did not follow God in faith. In that sense, he was an unbeliever. But the account of Cain illustrates very well that these men did not honor God nor continue in an attitude of thankfulness, though they knew him, which is just what Paul said. Instead, Paul says, they became futile in their speculations. Futile could be translated to the word vanity. And so in vanity, Paul's saying, they began to speculate. They substituted their own opinions of God for what truth they had access to already in God. And as you see this progress over generations, in time, the process of substituting foolish speculations for the truth darkened the human heart, Paul says. You can think of God's truth as light. Scripture says that itself. So the light of God to the soul of men becomes darkened over time. They would push that light away, so to speak. They would reject the truth. Instead, they chose to believe their own opinions and speculations rather than the truth. They just got more foolish as generations passed and in time you lose your ability to find your way back i'm talking humanity not on an individual basis now but in terms of humanity's corporate understanding of god they lose it over time i want you to imagine someone in complete darkness with a single candle as their only light source sitting on a on a stand and as they're near the candle they have light but for whatever reason they turn their back on the light and they start walking away into the darkness In time, you'll find yourself so far from the candle, you can't see the light any longer, and at that point, you can't find your way back. Spiritually speaking, mankind made a similar journey over generations, over about 2,000 years. In verse 22, Paul says, mankind was professing to be wise throughout this time, but they became foolish. I love the word professing. It means to assert something. It's not true, necessarily. It's an assertion anyone can assert anything and our assertions are not automatically true merely because we hold them to be just because someone in a small group bible studies declares you know what this bible verse means to me is i think this bible verse means whatever well that doesn't mean they know what it means right in fact that statement almost always precedes a foolish statement so look at the progression they knew god but they did not honor him maintaining a heart of thankfulness for what he had made Instead, they started to speculate, to replace truth with their own opinions. It darkens their foolish hearts. And as they continue that downward descent in verse 23, the next step in the spiral is to do what? Their speculations reach the point where they exchange the glory of a creator God for a lie, the lie of paganism. And they begin worshiping and serving created things. Among the things we worship instead of God, Paul says, includes, look at the list and notice the order. Corruptible man, birds, four-legged creatures, crawling things, crawling creatures. Look at the progression. First, we trade men for God. Corruptible though they are, obviously. They're still God's greatest creation. That's bad enough. But beyond that, the deceitfulness of our foolishness doesn't stop there. We go from men at some point to deciding we'd rather worship birds. Now, birds are clearly lower than mankind. They can't think, not like we do. They can't talk. They can't rule over us like men can. And yet somehow the foolishness of darkened hearts came to the point where they thought a bird could actually be a superior creature to a man. They could be our God. I guess maybe because they fly, right? And I'm not being facetious, but I'm saying maybe that that ability is a kind of transcendent ability that we envy. And so we admire that and we worship a bird now. But we don't stop there. We move to dumb four-legged animals that can't talk, can't think, and can't even fly. Bulls, goats, jackals cats, you know, you've seen things on the sides of Egyptian pyramid walls, right, the things that they would worship. And of course, the worst of the four-legged animals would have to be poodle worship, (laughs) for which there is no hope of redemption. It doesn't stop there, and the progression here is intended to demonstrate how foolish people get. Mankind began to worship the least of all creation, insects, and by least we're saying in the way God himself has defined these categories in Genesis chapter 1. The least are the crawling creatures. Well, Paul's point is to mock the stupidity and the foolishness of the heart that walks away from God. We cannot shake that instinctive part of us that knows where to worship, that has an instinctive desire to acknowledge the presence of a creator God, but spiritual blindness directs us into fulfilling that need in the weirdest, strangest, silliest ways. Calling bugs our God. We don't do this routinely, right? So we can think of this in a bit of a superior way, right? Oh, we'd never do that, right? But even our so-called sophisticated modern world has continued in this descent. In Paul's day, the worst he had ever seen was worshiping insects. That's why the list stops there. Today, you find people worshiping rocks and trees. Things that don't move, that aren't living. We say that somewhat dismissively, right? Oh, you're just a tree hugger. There are real people out there who really do worship trees. All of this shows that we have moved to the most meaningless parts of the creation, calling them the greatest of all things, even greater than us. That we serve it instead of the other way around. This pagan foolishness would be laughable, except that it produces such devastating consequences within society. In verse 24, Paul explains this next step in the descent into oblivion. Following this trading of the Creator for the creation, he says... Then the Lord gave men over to the lusts that resulted from this and allowed them to then dishonor their own bodies. I want to rephrase Paul's statement in verse 24 this way. Because they walked away from the light, the Lord gave them over to their dark desires so that they would suffer the consequences together. So mankind came to this point because it exchanged the Creator for the lie of paganism. He uses the word exchange there to reflect the fact that we made this trade willingly. Mankind began with the knowledge of God, then chose a trade for something less, so that in future generations, they no longer had the option. I want you to understand this. We're not saying that every human being born to existence follows this path from birth to death. We're saying that humanity has moved down this trail, and at some point it moved so far away from the candle that the children don't have the option to go back to the light anymore. The generations immediately after Adam did not have the degree of depravity in them that we have today. And what drove it down? Paganism. Because when you elevate the creation above the creator, you amplify the importance of physical things over spiritual things. So as physical things increase in importance to us, we will give physical needs priority over spiritual needs such that our flesh begins to rule. Ultimately, you live to fulfill your body's desires because that becomes the end purpose of life rather than pleasing the Creator. And it leads mankind to devolve in our flesh in the same way that we already have devolved in our spirit. Remember, we move from God to man, to birds, four-footed creatures. That's a, a devolution of our spiritual condition as we move down to the most ridiculous elements of creation and call it our God. Similarly, there's a devolution in our physical nature such that we begin to become increasingly hedonistic, increasingly perverse, increasingly self-destructive. Paul says that in verse 26. He says, "...for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer..." God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Of course, Paul's speaking of homosexual behavior, but that word didn't exist in Paul's day. Society had not yet given that behavior such a respectable title. In Paul's day, it was simply described by what it is. There was no word for it. And this is Paul's example of the worst form of human foolishness and rebellion. It is fashionable today to assert that homosexuality is compatible with Christianity. I'm not going to pontificate on this much, even in light of our current political situation. It's not necessary. The text is clear in what it says. Paul calls such acts indecent, which literally means shameless. They are shameless in the sense that society no longer considers the act to be cause for shame, but rather approves it. So despite the Lord condemning such behavior in the strongest terms in various places in Scripture, for example, prior to the law, you see him showing his displeasure in what he does to Sodom and Gomorrah. In the law, he calls for the death penalty for anyone who would practice it in Israel. And then after the law in the New Testament, the word of God condemns it here in the strongest possible terms. So it is clearly not approved, not permissible. And more importantly, it's a sign, the end of the road for paganism. God allowed mankind's physical condition to find its bottom, just as he did for our spiritual condition. And what is the low water mark for mankind, physically? What tells you when you've hit bottom in the physical state of humanity? Paul says it's when you see men and women trading natural sexual desire for that which is unnatural. That's your low water mark. It's a sign of how bad things have become. There is always a consequence for sin, and Paul says the consequence for this type of sin will be a due penalty received in their own person. A due penalty, it means necessary, inevitable in other words, this is not a specific judgment of God. Paul's saying that the natural consequence of going against God's design for creation will be a penalty in their persons. People who engage in these things risk receiving the due penalty, and that refers to all aspects of their person, spiritual, emotional, physical. And of course, history has shown that Paul's words here are true. If you know much about the community that surrounds this kind of behavior, there are devastating consequences for this perversion. And then notice in verse 28, Paul moves one step further in detailing the consequences. He says, Then God gives mankind over to a depraved mind. The word depraved here means something that does not stand the test or is not approved. So what we're hearing is the Lord has allowed mankind to experience the consequences of a darkened heart and of perverse choices, the end of which is a mind that cannot stand the test. That is, it is unapproved. The mind can no longer grasp what is good, what is proper. We've lost anchor, we've been cut free to float in a sea of obscure thinking about what is right and what is wrong and what we should and shouldn't do. There is no mooring anymore for what is morally real, and therefore every thought is evil at that point. Just glance through what I read in 29-31, through I'm not going to touch on every one of them. But in that list you find a succinct and accurate description of the society in which you live today. These are the due penalties inflicted upon society for paganism. You should follow the chain that we've just outlined. As paganism takes hold, and as paganism elevates the creation over the creator, and it causes us then to focus unnaturally on our physical desires, on the lusts of the flesh, that polluting of our bodies leads to a polluting of our minds, and in general, a society filled with the traits that Paul lists. So here's what we just learned. Society is the way it is now because the first lie of paganism gave rise to the sin of the flesh in this way. Paul is drawing a conclusion about any culture that embraces perversion generally. The same social forces that render homosexuality acceptable are also accepting all these other forms of depravity. Before long, greed and malice and wickedness and arrogance and disobedience to parents will all become the norm if they aren't already. They'll become socially acceptable if they're not already. That's what Paul is saying. And they all come from the same root, which is paganism. And then finally, Paul wraps up in this section by saying all these behaviors are worthy of death according to the Creator, who is the author of the law. right? The one who creates everything gets to decide what the rules are. And he said this stuff's wrong. And he says that was knowledge to man, but they did not care. So here's the great irony of paganism. The great irony of paganism is that while pagans have forgotten God, God has not forgotten them. And despite their determination to push God aside, the wrath of God will be revealed against them for their evil deeds. Notice at the end of the verse, at the end of this section, Paul says that this death isn't just deserved for those who practice such things, but also for those who approve of such things. Today, if you look around the world today, and I'm thinking of our society, I'm not sure if this is true everywhere you go, but statistically speaking, very few people engage in the kind of depravity Paul lists on this chart. I mean, we're all guilty of something. But very few people engage in homosexual behavior. Very few people are engaged in some of the worst of what we're talking about. Statistically, it's a percentage of the population. But many people approve of these things. It's a cause celeb now to be on the side of those who do these things. Even just in all of the stuff recently in Florida with the hurricane, I've seen people trying to defend looters. And some of them are making a race-based argument. Some are making an economic-based argument. Some are just loopy. But they're actually trying to find a way to endorse, to approve what is clearly theft under any definition, right? By the way, we're not talking about people who are dying and lack water and they're stealing a few bottles of water. We're talking about tennis shoes, right? Clearly people who are not motivated by needs for life and death. They're there for economic gain. My point is people celebrate now those who practice lawless deeds and get away with it. We put them on YouTube by the way, I'm at risk right now of being one of those crabby old men that says, get off my grass, right? <laughs> I understand, you know. Any society who agrees with such things is as guilty as those who practice it, Paul says. So let me ask a quick question as we, before we move to the next lie. How do we preach the gospel to this camp of religious deception? For the paganist, how do you approach them with the gospel? Because that's the whole point of Paul raising this now, right? Is to prepare us for how we're going to deal with the truth. And he's dispelling the lies. So, with those who might believe a paganistic view, the question must be to them what came before what is, and who made it? That's the best appeal for a pagan. It's the appeal of a creator God, as Paul explains it. And Paul actually uses this exact model when he approaches someone in the same situation in Acts 14. I'm not going to teach on what he does. I'm just going to read it. But look what he does in Lystra as he goes in to teach there. Acts 14.8, I'll just read a short passage. At Lystra, there was a man sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leapt up and began to walk. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. And preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things, as that word futile again, vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, notice this is very similar to his argument in Romans. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. And yet he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But even saying these things with difficulty, they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. So there's Paul's approach. Doesn't always work, but it's the approach. For if they're not willing to consider that there's something greater than what they've declared to be God, then you're going to have a hard time convincing them of your message. All right, let me just review quickly paganism. The lie gives license for mankind to amplify the importance of the physical world over the spiritual world. Self-evidently, paganism cannot lead you to righteousness because it appeals to the worst side of your nature. It increases depravity. It increases unrighteousness. Its history demonstrates that. Paganism has taken root such that the world has become more wicked. And therefore, it cannot be a source of making us right before God. One lie down. Three more to go. Now the second lie. Moralism. Romans 2 verse 1. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? This is the second category of false religion, moralism. Moralism, to define it, it's the practice of making judgments about one's or another's righteousness. Now, to some extent, we always do this, right? We all make judgments. But in effect, moralism is making ourselves the judge over ourself. And based on the judgments we make about ourselves, we assume God will follow suit in our judgments. It's as if we know the mind of God. Moralism is the second great religious lie after paganism. In fact, paganism gave birth to moralism. Paul transitions, you notice, with the connecting word, therefore, in chapter 2, verse 1. So he connects his earlier discussion with this new topic, and that raises the question for us. How are they connected? Well, here's how. Paganism gave rise to lust and depravity, but not everyone in society participates to the same degree in those behaviors, right? Not all of us are homosexual. Not all of us are murderers. All of us thieves. We all have our proclivities, but we're not all engaged to the same degree in everything. So, out of that societal effect you have the worst of the worst doing the unnatural things as paul called them and you have some condoning but then you have others who are disagreeing with those things in their own ethic and that gives rise to judgments so in depraved society mankind can begin to make distinctions between the good the bad and the ugly within their own frame of thinking within their own rules and those moral judgments are by definition relativistic We make them according to our advantage, like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and called him good teacher. Remember we talked about this last week. Jesus was asked by a guy how to get to heaven, and when he started the conversation, the man said to Jesus, good teacher. And Jesus stopped him at that point and said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Meaning Jesus said, goodness is not on a scale. Goodness is a point. You're either good or you're not. And goodness equals being God. If you're less than God, you're not good. You're 100% bad. We don't think like that. Not naturally. Paul says to his readers, he says, you, readers, have no excuse for your sin. He's talking to everyone. Paul says to everyone, including the church, although at this point he's not speaking about the church's circumstance, he's talking about humanity's circumstance generally. But everyone is guilty. And Paul says that we judge others at the risk of condemning ourselves. Here's what he means. When you judge someone on any issue and we're thinking now on moral issues particularly, you decide that that person is unrighteous, and therefore you are saying they are due a penalty, whatever that should be. But as you make that determination, what are you also saying? You're implying there is a standard. You're implying there's a rule set. There's a criteria. There has to be, right? You made a determination according to it. You cannot say someone is doing something wrong in your view without also agreeing there are rules. There are standards. There is a right and there is a wrong. And I just said, you're wrong. So if you judge others, then you're acknowledging that there are standards for righteousness. And those standards cannot be your own. Self-evidently, you did not make the rules for society. You are not king of the world. You certainly can't decide who gets into heaven. So the very fact that you're deciding that someone can be judged means you're also agreeing that there can be rules that we all must follow. And yet we speak confidently That those who practice such terrible things are due a penalty. All those terrible you-know-who sinners, they do such terrible things. They're going to have it coming to them. Which means you acknowledge there's a lawgiver who holds people accountable. You see, you don't have to say it all for it to be true implicitly when you judge. And logically, if you are acknowledging the existence of a lawgiver and of a law that must be followed or there will be consequences, then you're condemning yourself. Because Paul says, you've practiced the very same things you're accusing other people of doing. Maybe not now. Maybe not as much. And I know that all of us haven't committed all exactly the same deeds. But we do share a great many of the same offenses. And even beyond your actions, you all share the same heart desires. I mean, not all of us have killed a person, but we all wished someone was dead at some point, didn't we? (laughs) Not all of us have stolen, but we've all longed for something we didn't possess. Not all of us have committed adultery, but most of us have been attracted by the possibility at one moment or another except me. So how do we pass... My wife's here, I can't. So Paul's point is obvious. How do we pass judgment so easily then? It's as if we've disconnected our brain from our heart as we do that, right? Passing judgment always involves making comparisons. And moralism, the conceit of moralism, is that we make wrong comparisons that favor our ego. We judge someone who commits a certain sin by comparing them to ourselves. And since we have never committed that particular sin, we feel good about ourselves as we make that comparison. And we feel right, therefore, in judging the person who fell. And it gets worse. If we did happen to share their sin, then we still find a way to judge them because we see them as having a more severe case of it than we did or they have worse consequences, or a less repentant heart. I mean, we find the edge on the cliff that we need to stand on so that we can still be above them. Whatever we can, however we can, we will compare ourselves favorably. And as we find those opportunities, we're declaring ourselves righteous in relationship. We draw a line between righteousness and unrighteousness, and we find a small enough crack that separates us from the bad person that we've identified so that we're always on the other side of the line from them. And we take comfort in that. And we tell ourselves that God agrees with our thinking. That's how we sleep at night. But it gets worse. We move our line. Our lines are not set in stone. As long as the moralists can find someone who is worse than they are, they're safe. Like I said last week, Hitler gave us a rock bottom. We don't feel like we're ever going to be able to get past, right? And the fact that life seems to be going so well for us in light of our way of thought is proof to us that our methodology is working. Because moralism finds its reassurance in that we are avoiding, by our superiority, we're avoiding the worst of what society experiences because of their sin. It gets really silly when you look at how people do this. There could be a moralist who has been convicted of cheating on their taxes, but they still feel good about themselves because at least they didn't defraud millions of people like the evil people at Enron. The moralist may have dumped... Used motor oil in their backyard, but they didn't pollute the Alaskan coast like Exxon. They may have cheated on their wife, but at least they didn't have sex with a man. I may have killed someone, but at least I didn't murder six million Jews. So the moralist can always find a comparison that affirms for their own ego's sake that they are righteous enough to warrant heaven. So if you think you are good enough because you are better than Hitler, do you think Hitler was a liar? Do you think he ever told a lie? Yeah, of course. Have we lied? We have something in common with Hitler. That's not great. Do you think Hitler ever spoke a hateful thought? What about us? Do you suppose Hitler ever stole or deceived someone or coveted or betrayed or insulted someone? Undoubtedly. Since we've done those very same things, you would say, well, yeah, but of course Hitler murdered and I've never committed murder. To that I would ask, is that what you're resting on? is that the difference that you're basing your expectation for heaven on you're 98 percent like hitler but you did not kill so you should be okay in the end i understand that's a major issue in his life i'm not trying to make light of it but when there is just one fundamental difference that justifies our superior place to someone we think is the epitome the poster child of unrighteousness it begins to call into question just where our standard is what is the line we're really seeking here are you confident that God's standard requires that only mass murderers go to hell? That's what Paul is asking in verse 3. Do you suppose, O oh moralist, that you will escape the judgment of God? This is your supposition? God is the author of the law, the creator of all things under his law, and therefore he will judge all things according to his standard. As I said earlier, it's his heaven. He gets to decide who goes, and he gets to decide the standard for how you get in. And unlike the moralist, Paul says, the judgment of God is unbiased. He's not a respecter of persons. So why has the moralist supposed that he or she will escape judgment someday? Well, the reason is because they assume God's lack of response to their life so far is proof that all is well with him. Sometimes they're characterized as people who think about the scale in the sky. As long as I'm mostly a good person, I'll be okay. Ask that person if they're afraid of death or of the judgment that follows. And I'll tell you, most of the time they'll say no. They'll tell you they don't have reason to fear because they're a good person. And if you ask them for any evidence of that, perhaps they'll cite the fact that their life is going a good direction, the way they want. They have avoided disaster. They're not suffering the penalties they see other bad people suffering. Sometimes this is expressed as a concept called karma. My karma is good. I've made good choices, doing good things. I'm seeing good results. My life's just hunky-dory. You know, This is proof that God is okay with what I'm doing. And it leads to greater confidence in their self-righteousness and ultimately a kind of heartless, judgmental attitude toward the world. It's like the person who walks by the homeless person and says, get a job. It's this idea that I'm where I am because I've done all the right things and you are where you are because you've done all the wrong things. So the lie of moralism is that righteousness is on a sliding scale, not a point, and we can all be our own judge. We judge ourselves basically as good people, basically good enough to go to heaven, and we find confidence in that assumption because our life is going well, so I guess God is pleased with us, so there you go. Paul says things are not as they seem for a moralist. Verse 4. He says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. And then he'll finish the thought in a minute, but I'm going to stop there just for a second. So here's what the moralist is thinking. Paul says, You're thinking lightly of the riches and the kindness and the tolerance and the patience of God. The word tolerance could be translated delaying. God in his kindness is delaying addressing the sin of the moralist. And the word for patience could be translated long-suffering. So while God waits to see this person at judgment, that person is causing God to suffer watching him take God's patience for granted. That's how you have to see a moralist circumstance in life. They're one heartbeat away from judgment. They're living a life thinking they're fine because they've judged themselves to be fine. And at any moment, they're going to find out just how wrong they were. God's delay in judging them is not an endorsement of their lifestyle. It's kindness from God intended as an opportunity for them to come to him in repentance. And when the moralist dies and faces judgment, they're going to realize they wasted a lot of good years, which is what Paul says in verse 5. Paul contrasts the moralist's self-serving judgment with that of a righteous God. Because what he's saying is, God doesn't grade on the curve that you've been coasting down your whole life. You won't get by with all the nonsense that you keep telling yourself about how you're good enough and how much worse you could have been. Paul says that as the moralist is telling himself that he's safe, or herself, that that she's safe, in reality what they're doing is storing up wrath for the day of judgment. It's not metaphor. I mean, it's metaphoric language, but the concept's not metaphor. It's literal. Paul is saying, I want you to imagine that you could measure God's wrath in increments, like filling up some kind of measuring cup with wrath. Paul's using that idea to remind the moralist that all the good days they experience on earth should not give them confidence going into their judgment because every time another sinful day passes, the moralist's sins are not going unnoticed by God. It's as if he's up there just counting up those sins and the wrath that they deserve and just piling it up, waiting for the day he's going to unleash it on them at their judgment. It's a harsh thought, I understand, but if you take... God's grace and love and mercy to the bank, you cannot then dismiss the other side of his character. Because if God is not consistent and faithful to his promises to judge, then why do you take him as faithful in the promises he gave you concerning eternal life? If he can be capricious in one, he can be capricious in the other. He's all or none. Paul quotes from Proverbs when he says that he will render to each man according to his deeds. Every human being is storing up something. That's the principle. Everybody is storing up something. God's judgment for each of us is connected to our deeds. It's a general principle in Scripture concerning judgment. And Paul goes on to contrast how that judgment differs for believer versus unbeliever. In verse 7, speaking of the believer, Paul says this is how God will judge the believer. He will assign rewards according to our service. If the believer perseveres in doing good, seeking for glory and honor, then that person is storing up eternal life. Now, that conclusion sounds wrong to us because we know that salvation comes by faith alone, not by works. Paul knows that. He's going to teach that. But Paul's talking about judgments here. So which judgment is he talking about when he talks about believers? He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ where rewards are assigned, not a decision of whether you get into heaven or not. That's already settled on the cross. This is the moment we go before him as a believer to know what our reward will be. And so verse 7 is describing that judgment, where God is judging believers for the signing of reward, not for determining if they're saved or not. And concerning that judgment, we are storing up eternal life, so to speak. Or you could say we are, we're storing up for that life. That's the sense of what he's saying. Those who work for the Lord in faith will be storing up something for eternal life. The more you serve, the more good deeds you accomplish, the more that's waiting for you there. That's the general principle of Scripture. But there is the other side of this. What does the Lord store up for the unbeliever? Verse 8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation is being stored up. And he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But... Glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So he renders punishment to unbelievers according to the degree of their sinfulness, just like he renders reward to the believer to the degree of their industriousness in serving God. So there is something comforting, I guess, for those of us who hate sin and desire for righteousness. The worse the sins are for a person who commits sin during their life on earth, that is of an unbeliever, the worse their sins are, the worse their punishment will be, is what Paul's saying. So you can take some satisfaction in knowing that the Hitlers of our world will get what they have coming, but friends, that's very little satisfaction to those who find themselves at the cooler end of hell's furnace. God's wrath will be unbearable regardless, and all men should seek to be rescued from that just penalty that their sins deserve. The book is about how you do that. We haven't reached that point yet of talking about that solution yet. But the sold-out moralist isn't bothered by this arrangement he's already convinced that he's got a passing grade so he's happy to hear that bad guys get punished he's content to understand that god rewards people according to their deeds he's told himself that his days have been filled with good deeds and he's conveniently overlooked his sins that's the conceit of the moralist he declares himself to be righteous and he expects god to agree it's an unrealistic view of self and of sin and of the standard of righteousness So the second great religious lie follows naturally from the first. Paganism gives rise to an evil and depraved society, and that gave opportunity for men to judge one another within society for who was doing worse. Some declared themselves to be better than others. It became possible to make those judgments. That gave rise to a pecking order of morality within society. It's the natural order. But it's a self-serving, relativistic, untrue standard and it's not according to god's standard so while men were judging themselves thinking they're outside of god's wrath they're just fooling themselves god's been watching them and storing up all right so how do we appeal to a moralist well the moralist has to come to an appreciation of his his own sin and the standard that god sets for holiness that unbending strict standard of perfection the best lesson for a moralist is actually the one i covered last week when jesus met that rich young ruler That ruler was a moralist. We covered the beginning of that when he says, good teacher, and we covered what that meant. We didn't cover the back half of it. Listen to how it ends. After he confronts Jesus with the question, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. Then Jesus proceeds to give him an answer. Verse 20. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the ruler said, all these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus knew when he heard the man's question that he was expecting that he could work his way to heaven. He says, what shall I do? He was already in the mindset that this is a task list. Give me the task list. I'll accomplish the task list. I'll be okay. So Jesus plays along with him at first. He gives the man a list of works to perform that supposedly would give him entry into heaven. Because the man's a moralist, he loved that answer. That's exactly what he was hoping for. And in his mind, he immediately judged himself to be successful against all those commandments. And I think the Lord intentionally picked the commandments that he did because they were likely to please the man. These are rules that were among the most severe, the ones that he would least likely have broken. You know, he didn't talk about lying. He didn't talk about coveting. He talked about the harder ones, if you will. The man says, I've kept these from my youth, which is a way of saying, as long as I can remember, I've done these things. Again, the moralist standard was met in his own mind, so he's feeling good about himself right now. He's looking for Jesus to kind of give him the wink and the fist bump right about this point in the conversation. But Jesus lowers the boom on this guy, and he asks this man to do one more thing, but interestingly, not something found in the law. He tells him, sell everything you own, bless the poor with what you have, so that you may receive a reward in heaven, and then just follow me. And that's too much to ask. Notice the man's reaction, though. He does not leave angry he's not defensive, he doesn't debate the point, he doesn't argue, he gets sad. And it says he's sad because he's rich. He knows that what Jesus was asking for was intrinsically a good thing. You couldn't argue that. How could you argue against doing that? But the man simply wouldn't agree to those terms. And in that way, what Jesus just did in a very brilliant fashion, obviously, is he exposed the man's biased scale. He laid bare his criteria The man had judged himself worthy of eternal life because he was using a scale that was tipped in his favor. But when Jesus changed the scale, the man couldn't, or not couldn't, wouldn't, meet the terms. He wasn't truly innocent of the earlier stuff either. It was selective memory. Because as Jesus said, if you hate, you've done the equivalent of murder. But rather than get into a debate with this man over his past imperfections, Jesus just exposes his hypocrisy. So the answer for the moralist is, seek to expose their hypocrisy... By explaining from Scripture what the true standard is for entry into heaven, such that they come to understand they can't meet it. Before I tell you there is a Messiah, you have to understand why you need a Messiah. And the moralist doesn't need anything. The moralist has already got it all together. But the standard is perfection. Jesus says in Matthew 5.48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the question to the moralist. How do you become perfect?